Welcome to Crash Course with me, Michael Walker. This is my third episode on the background to the Gaza war. And this is the first where I look specifically at how the geopolitical situation in the Middle East impacts the Israel-Palestine conflict. I have episodes lined up on Iran and Saudi Arabia, but I'm going to start with two countries that immediately border Palestine, Egypt and Jordan. Both have had an intimate and changing role in the conflict since 1948. Egypt, which is Palestine's most populous neighbour, went to war four times with Israel in the first 25 years of Israel's existence, but it went on to become the first Arab nation to make peace with Israel and has, since 2007, collaborated with Israel in its blockade of Gaza. For its part, Jordan used to claim a large part of Palestine as their own, annexing the West Bank between 1948 and 1967. But they too went on to make peace with Israel, this time in 1994. To discuss the history of both nations and their relationship to Israel-Palestine from 1948 until today, I spoke to Abdel Razak Takriti, who is Chair of Modern Arab History at the University of Houston. You're listening to Crash Course with me, Michael Walker. To support the podcast and get access to bonus episodes, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. Abdel Razak Takriti, thank you so much for joining me on, on Crash Course. I know you must be incredibly busy at the moment. Thank you, Michael. Yes, absolutely. The situation in Gaza is reaching genocidal proportions. And I think that we're all uh, very busy trying to stop this genocide from continuing. Yeah, and I mean, I'm especially appreciative because I know we're in these podcasts we're we're sort of taking a, a step back as well, not just talking about the the emergency on 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 the ground. And I wanted today to talk especially about the relationships between Egypt and Jordan, um, and Israel and Palestine, both to understand the history, but also then to give some context to the role that Egypt and or Jordan might be playing in in what happens now. Obviously, Egypt is coming a lot up a lot because of of the Rafah crossing. We've got lots of ground to cover. So I wanted to start with Egypt and start by giving a a potted history of Egyptian relations with Israel. And you can sort of correct me if I'm wrong, but then we'll sort of set off from there. So I've got down the first 30 years of Israel's existence. Egypt was its most powerful enemy. So it was, you know, the big threat to Israel was especially from, from Egypt and the armies went to war four times. So in 1948, Egypt leads the Arab states that declare war on Israel immediately after its foundation. Um, Israel wins that war, it expands its territory, but Egypt ends up controlling Gaza. So at this point, Gaza isn't occupied by the Israelis. Um, After that, you then have a brief war in 1956. In Britain, we know that as the Suez Crisis. I'm not exactly sure what it's known as in the rest of the world. Um, That was over access to the the Suez Canal. The tripartite uh, aggression. The tripartite aggression. Okay, that that's probably a better description of it than the Suez Crisis. Um, and then the, the next really big moment we have is the Six Day War in 1967. So in that war, um, Israel went to war with Egypt, partly over access to the Red Sea, partly over I think the remilitarization of, of Sinai. Um, Syria and Jordan joined the war on the side of Egypt, but this is the war where Israel wins spectacularly. Um, so they have a complete military victory, and they go on to occupy both Gaza and the West Bank after this war. So that's when what's known as sort of the occupation in, in liberal circles begins, obviously, for, for people who see the whole of Israel as a settler colonial state. That begins in 1948. For, for people who believe in two states, um, it's, it's from 1967 that the occupation of Palestine begins. And then the fourth war 
1973. So lots of wars going on. Um, that's known as the Yom Kippur War. So in that war, Egypt makes a surprise attack on Israel to take back the Sinai Peninsula, which Egypt occupies after the 1967 war. That war is ultimately unsuccessful. So Israel wins the war. But Egypt, because they have launched such a successful surprise attack on, on Israel, they sort of shatter the idea of invincibility that Israel had. And also the idea that the Egyptian army was just a joke, was pathetic. So they sort of, they've, they've won some pride, even though they've lost the war. And by winning some pride and by making Israel seem less invincible, that paves the way for an Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty in 1979, when in that treaty, Egypt recognises Israel in exchange for the return of the Sinai Peninsula. So this is one example where a state makes a peace deal with Israel in exchange for land, so land for peace. So as I say, an incredibly potted history, brushing over some incredibly big topics. But I suppose I wanted to ask you first, you know, without giving me a sort of year by year or step by step account of, of 30 years of history, what are the key themes that we should understand when it comes to how Egypt went from being the key enemy of Israel, the key belligerent, to being the first Arab state to sign a peace treaty with Israel? So let's start with the structural situation, Michael, and I think it's important for our listeners to know a little bit about it. What is Israel? Israel is the state of the settler colonists that came to Palestine under British protection and facilitation after Britain issued the Balfour Declaration in 1917. So Britain wanted to turn Palestine from an Arab country into a Jewish national homeland, and that project was opposed by not just the Palestinian Arabs that were living in Palestine, but also by the entirety of the Arab region. That's the first thing that I think listeners should think about because it's the background to all of this story. Now, the Arab states and the Arab population in Palestine, with varying degrees, fought against the creation of a settler colonist state. Those states that were represented in the United Nations, for example, at the time, which included Egypt but did not include Jordan, opposed the partitioning of Palestine, and they insisted on the need for the unity of the territory and the institution of a democratic system there, which would have ultimately meant that you would have had a majority indigenous state with a settler colonist 30% minority. That was basically their position. However, the great powers... In that period, these also included the two superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union, had a consensus on the need to establish this settler colonist state and to impose it on not only the local population, but also the surrounding region. This is the origin of all the conflicts in this part of the world. So, in the case of Jordan and Egypt, they both had a complicated relationship uh, to this map. Once the settler colonist state was uh, beginning to take a shape and form in 1947, 1948. The leadership in, in Jordan, uh, which at the time was King Abdullah I, the grandfather of the current king, um, had felt that the, the emergence of a settler colonist state was inevitable, given the fact that all the major European powers are going to force it on the region. And therefore, he thought that his best aim would be to get a piece of the pie, get at least part of Palestine. He would say to preserve the Arabness and the indigenous population in that part. But of course, so as the tractors in the Palestinian movement were saying that it was purely for territorial expansion. Anyways, 
he basically had his uh, negotiation process with the Zionist movement at the time, agreeing to some form of splitting of the territory whereby he would get the West Bank and the Zionists would end up with the rest of, of the territory. That does not mean that he ever approved of Zionism. does not mean that he approved of the takeover of the rest of Palestine. It just meant that he was a local ruler that felt that he was not powerful enough to be able to institute a general just vision. And therefore, if he could at least achieve part of it uh, through pra these pragmatic means, then that's something. Okay. And that was a part of the reason why the Arab armies failed in 1948 to stop the ethnic cleansing of the rest of Palestine and why the Zionist forces were able to take over 78% of the territory. And, and the territories in which they fought hard were basically the central plateau region, which became the West Bank, and that already that had agreements between King Abdullah and the Zionist movement. But, it, but you had areas of disagreement like Jerusalem, those saw the strongest wars, and King Abdullah was able to retain the eastern part of it as a result of consistent military commitment in that zone. Uh, in, in the case of the Egyptians, for them, Gaza was very important because that's the gateway to Egypt. That is the historic, and, and I think our, our listeners now think of Gaza as just basically a terrible ghetto, the world's largest open-air prison, a completely bombarded town, the new Stalingrad, call it whatever. But in old times, Gaza was, was actually, and historically throughout history, it's the link between greater Syria and Egypt. It is the link between Asia and Africa. It is a very important trading land route. And additionally, it is a very fertile and beautiful place. Orange orchards, citrus trees, flowers. This is a major producer of all of these things. So it was a fantastic place. It was important for the Egyptians. This is geopolitically and geostrategically very important for them. So they fought hard to keep it. So this is the background historically to what's going on. Both Egypt and its relationship to Gaza and Jordan and its relationship to the West Bank have to do with this story. And they're central components to understanding what's going on today. Because the West Bank initially went under Jordanian, not only Jordanian governmental control, but also it was annexed by Jordan. It was officially counted as part of Jordan. Um, Gaza had a slightly different status. The Egyptians did not want to give up on the idea of uh, Palestinian national self-determination. And so therefore, uh, they had no territorial interest in Gaza per se, aside from protecting the gateway to their country. So they placed it under administrative rule rather than annexed it. And the population in Gaza was given the status of basically an Egyptian laissez-passe for the purposes of, of travel. It's a travel document. It does not amount to a passport. Whereas in, in Jordan, the Palestinian population in West Bank became Jordanian citizens. Now, in 1967, everything changed. But before that, and this is important when it comes to Gaza and Egypt, before that, there was constant border trouble between the, Egyptian, the Egyptians in Gaza and the Israelis. The Israelis had done regular incursions into Gaza throughout the 1950s. They had thought that Gaza is a serious problem for them. The problem for them in Gaza had to do with the demographics. When they ethnically cleansed the southern portion of Palestine, most of the refugees from that ended up in Gaza. So anything south of Yaffa, which is which was taken over by Tel Aviv in the modern times, if you look at Tel Aviv in the map, that's originally a suburb of Yaffa. So anything south of that ended up, go, people south of that ended up going to Gaza because they were forced out. The only outlet for them is to go south. In the same way that now you see 
the Israelis forcing people out from the north uh, to, uh, of Gaza to the su- to, to south, we had the same situation happening between the southern districts of Yaffa and the northern districts of Gaza. The, the, those that were in the southern districts of Yaffa were forced south towards the northern districts of Gaza, which is why Gaza ended up becoming a, such a huge place for refugees. 80, 70 to 80% of the population currently there are of refugee descent. They come from Yaffa, they come from the Majd al-Asqalan, which was the Israelis renamed as Ashkelon. They, they come from Isdud, which the Israelis renamed as Ashdod. All of this area, including, by the way, the kibbutzim and the military bases and so on that were, that were targeted in the October 7th attack, all of this area is, actually belongs and is owned by Assyrian refugees in the Gaza Strip. They have the title deeds to it. Uh, uh, it, it is their territory. So many of these refugees were go, trying to go back home in the early 50s. They were trying to do, cross back to the border. Some of them were even trying to uh, carry out sabotage operations against these kibbutzes. Kibbutzes, by the way, stand for colonies. People think of them as, as hippie communes. But in the, in the Palestinian experience, what they are is actually colonies. That's how they were set up. They were set up as to, in order to facilitate takeover of indigenous Palestinian land. So I want people to know that. Okay, it's very important. In these kibbutzes, there were sabotage operations. People would blow up pipes. People would try to basically create as much disruption to the normalization of colonial life in this space. Now, in that context, the Israelis began to launch constant raids on Gaza and many times committing massacres, huge massacres. There were ones in Deir al-Balah. There were ones in Khan Yunis. And this coincided, especially in 1953, with the Americans proposing uh, a resettlement project that would end up taking a portion from Sinai and resettling Palestinian refugees from Gaza in there. That would have been a double blow to Palestinian aspirations and rights, as well as to Egyptian national sovereignty. So the Egyptians were uh, opposed to it, although initially Gamal Abdel Nasser entertained the idea. Now, this idea, by the way, is recurring, and it, I talk about it now because it's being uh, proposed once again. The minute people heard of this idea in Gaza, they launched an intifada against the Egyptian authorities, and it lasted for several days. And it saw, for the first time, two strange bedfellows, the Communist Party and the Muslim Brotherhood, standing united and launching intifada against Egyptian authorities because they were saying, first of all, you're not arming us to protect ourselves against Israeli raid. Why are we are you leaving us as passive victims? And secondly, they raised the slogan, no resettlement, no housing, because they, they didn't want this uh, the, these promises of economic development that were connected to resettlement. Um, they were like, no resettlement, no housing, down with the agents of the Americans. This was the slogan of that. 53 Intifada. So there's a lot to think about parallels with the present here. These are constantly reappearing themes, Michael. In that period, the demands of the people of Gaza were uh, confronting Abdel Nasser with a serious crisis. He wanted good relations with the United States, but he did not want to lose Egyptian sovereignty and he did not want to come off as not protecting the people of the Strip. So that led then to a different reconceptualization. For a while, there was the initiation of what, what became Fida'i movements from Gaza towards the Israeli state. There were constant, a constant period of border wars that lasted for quite a while. This period, in 1956, we end up seeing it 
explode into a serious situation because, and that's connect, that's the so-called Swiss crisis that you're referring to, which is actually, it's called in Arabic, tripartite aggression. Israel uh, orchestrates with the UK and France this plan to basically go and invade Egypt. Each country was trying to achieve its own aims. The, the British were concerned with the nationalization of the Suez Canal. The, the French were concerned with Nasser's support for liberation of Algeria and other liberation struggles in French colonies. And, you know, the Israelis, of course, wanted to acquire territory and, and wanted to do a big blow that would actually bring down the, the Egyptian government. So they did that. They carried out the operation successfully. When you have like three countries, including two big empires, carrying out a war against a country like Egypt, they're going to win initially. But they faced the resistance. And at the same time, there was an international condemnation and there was regional Arab mobilization around it. And that meant that they had to basically re retreat eventually. But during this process, Israel had invaded and occupied Gaza for the first time. And there emerged actual resistance against it, locally underground resistance. That was the first instance of organized major resistance and mobilization on the part of Palestinians against Israeli forces anywhere. So Gaza has a long history of resistance. That's what I'm, I'm trying to say here, including armed resistance against, of course, an, a heavily armed invading colonial force. So, so this is um, important to note from the Gazan perspective. Now, the, the results of the 56 war, yes, they, these people had to withdraw, but uh, however, you had an international force put in Sinai. The Egyptians, Egyptian sovereignty was kind of undermined in that process because basically they did not have full control over the territory. Eventually, you had a situation where the Israelis were trying to expand further even after that war through controlling the natural resources of the region. So they had a plan to divert the waters of the River Jordan. Unfortunately, that plan was actually successful eventually. They carried out something called the Israel National Water Carrier Project. And that that meant that the Dead Sea, which is a, a human treasure, really, I mean, it's an incredible natural treasure, is, is now disappearing and so on. I'm not going to go into the environmental impact, but it had devastating impacts, potential impacts on Jordan and Syria and other countries connected to the, the Jordan Valley in that period. And basically, that was seen as a big threat at the time. And the Egyptians understood that they were under a lot of pressure. And of course, these pressures were facilitated by Western support. The only reason why any of this ever happened is that, again, we should remind ourselves, the Western powers decided there should be a settler colonial state in Palestine, and they provided it with diplomatic and military backing that was almost unlimited. To create a project like this, this is the structural thing that I want people to think about. Create a project like this is very expensive. It's, it's actually, I don't think any European leader has ever thought of it in terms of the long-term commitment. Any European leader at that time, they thought, okay, these are a bunch of natives that we'll be able to dominate quite, pretty quickly, and then we'll take it from there. You know, we just have to sponsor this, arm the colonists, get them ready, and everything will be fine. However, this is a bottomless pit because you're trying to impose a will not just on a native population, but on the entire region surrounding that did not want this project to happen. Now, it was framed th throughout as, as the settler colonist state 
is a victim is defending its existence. It was defined in existential terms from the standpoint of the settler colonists. However, the reality is the erasure of the Palestinians and the threats to the national security of the surrounding states was the real story here. That's the existence that was really threatened throughout this history. Now, Egyptians were told throughout, abandon the Palestinians and you'll get a cut. And abandon the Palestinians and then who cares? Okay, let them divert the rivers of the water, uh, uh, the Jordan River and so on. That's Jordan and Syria's problem. Uh, let them uh, deal with the Palestinians. That's the Palestinians' problem. Okay. Yamal Abdel Nasser had, had a, a policy of not implementing that vision. He was too committed to Palestine. He had also this geopolitics in general, his assessment of Egypt's position in the Arab world would have prevented him anyways, aside from his moral commitment to this cause. He had, he had political commitments and assessments that would have prevented him from taking that path. However, the 67 war created new realities and pressures that, that were very difficult for him and for the Egyptians today. Uh, because what it did was uh, it saw the Israelis attacking Egypt in a, in a major way. And they, they used as a pretext for that attack the Egyptian withdrawal of the UN peacekeeping forces and its, and its closing of the straits in the Red Sea for Israeli shipping. So they were like, we see that as preparing for an offense against us and therefore we're doing a preemptive strike. Of course, that's not re a real grounds for war because you really have to have a credible threat. But in, in the case of this situation, the Israelis were able to pull it off as a major media victory. The Part of their media victory is that to this day, people will tell you it's a preemptive war. Whereas everybody knows that Egypt had no plans to attack Israel. What they were trying to do was alleviate pressure on the uh, countries affected by the Jordan River system. They were alleviating pressure on Syria, which saw uh, uh, a concentration of Israeli troops in the in the north threatening it. They were receiving mixed uh, messages from the field about what Israelis were planning uh, to do. They were worried about the West Bank because there was a direct Israeli threat against it. So at the end, the Israelis launched this war. They were able to win it quickly because their air force was dominant. And of course, if you have uh, Western uh, Air Force money and uh, equipment, uh, you will win the Air Force war. The Egyptians ended up having to spend their time on rebuilding their army and preparing for the next round, basically. And, and they carried out a war of attrition for a while to ensure that they could sustain themselves before they could plan a war to regain their territories. In 67, they not only lost the Gaza Strip, which they were administering, but they also lost the entirety of, of Sinai. This is very, very dangerous for them. So you had occupied Egyptian territory that, that were controlled by the Israelis and that were uh, a serious issue for Egypt. Egyptians also had a, a partner that had lost a lot of territory at the time, which were the Syrians. They lost the Golan Heights in this period. So 67 was devastating for everybody in the surrounding Arab region. Uh, Michael, sorry, you wanted to say something well i wanted to hurry us along a bit to the 1979 egypt israel peace deal and i suppose to summarize where we are at the moment you've taken us up to 1967 egypt has just lost that humiliating war and israel has occupied not just gaza but the whole of the sinai peninsula which is the chunk of egypt between israel and the suez canal now what happens next is that in 1973 egypt launches the yom kippur war to regain sinai now it's a surprise attack from the egyptians and they've got the Syrians on side as well. Egypt initially 
makes some real gains and reoccupies large parts of the Sinai. Ultimately, though, um, Israel goes on to win the military battle and the Yom Kippur War. What's significant now, though, is that Israel has lost its sense of invincibility and Egypt has restored its pride. And this paves the way for the 1979 peace deal where Egypt recognizes Israel in exchange for the return of the Sinai to Egypt. There's one other significant development in this period and um, which makes this all possible is that Nasser, who's a proper Arab nationalist, um, he dies in 1970 and is replaced by Anwar Sadat, who is much more friendly to the Americans and less committed to the Palestinian cause. Um, is that a fair summary of how we get to the 1979 peace deal? Yeah, but the, it's more comp- uh, uh, two things to note. One is the preparation for the war in 73 was actually started by Nasser. And that prepara- those preparations lasted until his death in 1970, uh, and uh, and then you had the the arrival of Sadat on the on the on the scene. So Sadat comes in, initially is playing a delicate game. Sadat's philosophy was that the Amer- Americans are the biggest superpower in the world. It's not the Soviets, and the Americans. And this is a famous quote from him: "They hold all the cards in this region." Okay, so his idea was: what is the obstacle? between Egypt having good relations with the Americans. The only obstacle has always been Israel. Otherwise, by the way, had, had, had you not had an Israeli state, Egypt would have been the natural ally for the United States, even under Nasser. He sought initially an alliance with them. They rejected them over the Israeli issue. And, and because he refused to sell out, sell, sell out the Palestinians and to throw them under the bus, you had a difficult situation with the Americans. Now, of course, this was not just about the Palestinians for him. He also refused to sell Egyptian sovereignty and so on. I mean, he had his own political reasons for doing it. But the moral reasons were important. Sadat comes in. He's like, I don't care about throwing Palestinians under the bus. Uh, you know, he, he, he was like, the Americans have full control over this region. I will carry out the process of forcing them to understand that Egypt is important. And then they'll put pressure on the Israelis to give Egyptian lands back in exchange for throwing Palestinians under the bus. So basically, that, that was the plan. Now, this the war that he launched, he conceptualized it as, in Arabic, he used a statement, he said it's a harb tahrik, not a harb tahrir. As a harb tahrik, tahrik means movement. He wanted to initiate movement that would force eventually this outcome that you just mentioned, the return to Egyptian, of Egyptian territory. Harb uh, Tahrir uh, means war of liberation. So he did not actually intend it as a war of liberation. That's why when you say Israelis won, not entirely. I mean, what happened was Sadat didn't push through enough, and the Americans provided a major airlift of weapons, similar to the one happening today, where they're sending plane after plane after plane. But in, in 73, it was much more insane than that, even because they were... They were dealing with a, a state war there. So basically, the Israelis were able to survive that round, partly because Sadat did not want to keep on pushing there. His intention was, I need to get Sinai back. Now, he gets it. But here's the problem. He's following Kissinger's thinking initially. I mean, the architect of this whole way of dealing with things in the early 70s was Kissinger. And Kissinger doctrine is very important on this because it applies uh, to the present. The whole idea was uh, to screw the Palestinians. Let's demonstrate to the Arab states, surrounding Arab states, that 
they will always be weaker than the settler colonial state that is Israel through making sure that that state has military superiority at any moment. Kissinger's, and Kissinger actually was able to get this through officially in U.S. law now, and this is through Congress and, and the Senate. They passed a, a resolution, basically, that ended up committing the U.S. to ensuring that Israel will always have more weapons than their surrounding states combined. You know, the... Do you understand the military commitment that this entails and the financial commitment? And this is why I'm telling you, it's a it's a crazy expensive project to force through a, set, a belligerent settler colonial state on a region like this. It's an insanity, but they don't care. They impose this. Kissinger's idea was, we'll, we'll ensure that the surrounding states understand the balance, military balance of power here. But in addition to that, we'll ensure that they understand that the only way they could have good relations with the United States and optimal relations with the United States is through signing individual peace agreements with this settler colonial state, which means recognizing it. And by recognizing it, you're actually de-recognizing the right of the indigenous population to, essentially. <laughs> you're, you're, you're not really saying that, but... You're, in practice, you're making it harder for that population to reclaim its land or to achieve a, a democratic future in it. So that's that's a dilemma that all of these regimes face. The, the Egyptians start this process. The other Arab states initially were very angry with them because they were willing to go through a negotiated process. They were willing to even go very pragmatic, whereby they would just recover the lands that were lost in 1967, that the Israelis occupied in 1967, and that was a lot of land, by the way, in exchange for the recognition of that, of that state. But they wanted it to be done in a coordinated way. They wanted it to be done in a way that allows for Palestinian national self-determination, at least in parts of the territory. Most of the Arab states would have liked to see a Palestinian state emerging in that, out of that process. IPLO was very active at the time on the part of the Palestinians to ensure that they had a seat at the table. But Kissinger's philosophy was, we have to exclude the PLO. And by the way, we excluded them by saying they're a terrorist organization. And this is why I, I, I want, want us to focus also on this terminology. This terminology has nothing to do with moral assessment in reality. I mean, you people say it in the media to claim moral high ground and to say my moral compass is better than yours and all of this kind of uh, stuff. That, but in reality, uh, this language has very specific political objectives. It's to say this party is not allowed to have a seat at the negotiating table and therefore will not be part of any future political solution. Okay, So they excluded the Palestinians, which is the principal party to this conflict, or it's not even a conflict, it's to this colonization process. Okay. But in, uh, initiated a regional, a region-wide effort to try to get individual deals signed with the Israelis, as opposed to, of course, one regional deal. This is the other interesting thing. That was Kissinger's philosophy, and they went to Arab countries one by one, trying to encourage that. The only country that was able to do that at the time was Egypt. Now, after the fall of the Soviet Union, and in the context of, of course, the First Intifada, but also after the Gulf War. Everything changed because what you had was the loss of the main counterbalancing force to the Americans in the region, the Soviet Union. You had a situation where 
all cards on the table seem to genuinely now belong to the United States. With the fall of the Soviet Union, with the Gulf War, we had a situation where the entire geopolitics of the region were, were transformed. I mean, you had basically the, the loss of any alternative power in the region that people could rely on to balance the United States and its unconditional support for Israel. But also, you had the situation where the U.S. had become dominant in the most important states in the region militarily. They had military bases now across the Gulf and the Arabian Peninsula. They had a very strict siege imposed on Iraq, which which was one of the Arab states that was friendliest to the Palestinian cause. They had a situation that really weakened uh, Palestinians and, and weakened their their uh, Arab allies. Okay, I, I just want to take us right up to the present day. So the context you've provided is, is one where Israeli military power and America's victory in the Cold War has given Israel pretty much all of the cards in the Arab region. Um, the Egyptians have specifically gone from a place where they were a serious threat to Israel to, to one where they have recognized its existence and are pretty much an Israeli ally. And this is relevant to the current war um, because the initial demand made of Egypt following October the 7th was to say, look, the Gazans are too problematic for us. Um, we're ready to kick them all off their land and push them into the Sinai Peninsula and we'll pay you shed loads of money if you let that happen. Now, the Egyptian president did say no, so al-Sisi. Um, could you talk about what has fed into Egyptian decision-making during this current crisis? Sisi was actually wavering because the Americans came to him and they said, we'll give you a deal. You have a $50 billion problem with debts and enormous... I mean, seriously, Egypt is, according to Bloomberg, Egypt is the second country most likely to face a major debilitating debt crisis next year after Ukraine, unless there is external intervention in it. So it's, it's, it's in, a bad, in bad economic shape. So the Americans come in, they're like, how about we waive half of your debt, $25 billion, for you to just take this population and relieve of relieve the Israelis of their presence or existence on this land. Because, of course, the Israelis are so racist. They don't want Palestinians anywhere, okay? Now, what's what's the answer? He actually considered it, and we, we have uh, uh, proof, it's been reported in some, by, by credible Egyptian sources, that, that, that the Egyptian national security authorities did simulate a scenario whereby under Israeli fire, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians would try to cross the border into Egypt under Rafah. And they were like, okay, what do we do? Do we shoot at them or do we take them? And if we're going to have to take them anyways, we might as well take the 25 billion bucks <laughs> and and solve some of the issue. Now, the only problem with that logic, and this is something that the deep state in Egypt understands very well, the security establishment in Egypt understands very well, is that it would be a disaster for the Egyptians. Uh, should they follow the Sinai resettlement plan, you're going to have a long-term liberation war launched from it to liberate the Gaza Strip and then possibly the rest of Palestine. Which And guess who will be put under pressure to seize border hostilities and prevent them? The Egyptian state. It will be a replay of the post-1948 environment. You know, And Egypt would then be dragged into a situation where it faces enormous internal pressure from its population to contribute to the national liberation effort of the Palestinians that's now being launched from Egyptian territories. And in the meantime, 
it would have pressure from the Americans to to undermine that and stop it, and it would have accusations from the Israelis that it's not doing enough to prevent cross-border infiltration. It would be literally a replay of the scenario that I told you about in the 1950s, where Palestinians will try to liberate their land, the Egyptians get entangled, being forced to stop that. They don't want this. They don't want also armed Palestinians uh, and, and politically astute Palestinians. Palestinians are the most politically sophisticated population in the region. Everybody is, is part of a, of, a, of a party. This is why, by the way, I should say, Michael, it's so ridiculous when you hear in these Western media outlets talk of the Palestinian movement purely in terms of terrorism. Even Hamas, and I, I'm, I'm, I go by the book this on this and quote me. I don't mind people say, making accusations about me on this because I'm speaking here as a scholar and as a sober scholar, unlike these people that are high on uh, warmongering now. Even Hamas has been consistently open to discussion, negotiation, and considering the uh, possibility for, for future. Okay. However, they have principles that they will not cede when it comes to their vision on that. Unlike the current PLO leadership that has been more open to giving, to conceding on key Palestinian rights, they're stricter on that. So that's been the dilemma that the Israelis are facing with. And the Egyptians know this. They know that you can have talks with Hamas. So they see this as unnecessary. However, they can't go against the international trope that's launched by the Western powers of this is a war on Hamas and so on. You know, so they don't talk about it. But they, they've been negotiating with Hamas for forever, the Egyptians. Even at a time when they, they, they were suppressing their own Muslim brotherhood, they've been talking with Hamas leaders. They've been and, and what, dealing, do, they, what yeah. do they negotiate with Hamas about? What, what, why would there be Egyptian Hamas negotiations? Because uh, Egypt has a security needs uh, with Hamas. Uh, there's uh, uh, an insurgency that Egypt faces in Sinai. It's very important for them to coordinate with Hamas to ensure that there's no support from it coming from the Hamas side. The, the Egyptians have also, Egypt is the only land border with Gaza. And it has been actually criminally complicit in the siege of Gaza. And this is, again, something that's very unpopular in Egypt. The population is against besieging Gaza, but the government participates because the Americans want that. So this is why I always say Americanization equals Israelization in this part of the world. Because America prioritizes Israel for domestic political reasons pertaining to the United States. And, and as a result, regional states in the Middle East feel that the only way to America's heart is through Israeli channels. So... And they're, they're, they're given that impression by American officials. It's not just Israeli officials that promote this idea. So in the case of Egypt, the difficulty with, with this situation is that they understand that there is more complexity to Hamas than just terror. And that this is not ju just some insane ISIS-like organization as has been promoted in the Western media today. This is a situation more similar to Ireland, for example. There is a, a national liberation struggle. There are groups that are committed to it, okay? The British media was calling them terrorists throughout, but people in Ireland understood that there's more to this than the, the tactics that have been chosen in certain moments by the IRA, for example, okay? And the, 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 there is no regional solution, by the way, without Hamas. This is, I should be very clear. Anybody that's interested in, in future has to, be, has to take account of all the major political and, and military and strategic stakeholders in this part of the world. 
what the Israelis want is to take out Hamas so that they can weaken further the Palestinian negotiation position. Okay? And in fact, they don't want negotiations. They just want Palestinian submission at this stage to the West Bank colonization reality. And their plan was going fabulously well until the Hamas attack of October 7th because they were continuing on the Kissinger plan of the 70s. You sign individual peace agreements with the Arab states, and it's like a domino. It will all fall eventually, one by one. And once you've signed across the region, once everybody has said, we're down with the Israeli state, even without it giving a Palestinian state in the West Bank, which is a minor concession, would be it conceding 22% of the historical land of Palestine. It's really, honestly, it's the greatest deal that has ever been offered by any native population to any settled colonist population. And from a a native conception, it's the worst deal that has ever been offered by any leaders. The PLO offered that deal. The Hamas in different forms have indicated that they would offer a similar deal. But Israeli rejectionism ensures that it never happened. And Arab states understand that, but they have to deal with the American Western pressure. This is why now you have Sisi standing with Macron. He finds uh, finds it you know important to talk about the humanitarian crisis, so on and so forth, and to pretend that he cares about what's, what's going on. But what he is really thinking about is what are the political implications for the for for Egypt out of this. It's a disaster. Presumably, this whole thing is incredibly risky for Egypt, right? Because one thing we also haven't mentioned is, is the Arab Spring. So you, you had the Arab Spring, right. which which overthrew the Mubarak regime. There was elections, and it was the Muslim Brotherhood that, that won. And then the, the old guard sort of mounted a, a coup. But you've still got the Muslim Brotherhood as the main opposition to the current dictatorship. Now, as far as I understand it, Hamas is, to some degree, historically, a creation of the Muslim Brotherhood. So you've got this connection between the opposition in Egypt and Hamas, and then also lots of popular support in Egypt for the Palestinian cause. So if Sisi is seen to collaborate with, you know, obviously there is a, there's, there's for long for a long time been a degree of collaboration between Egypt and, and Israel since the peace deal, and including in collaboration over the blockade of Gaza. But the, the more, you know, the, the bloodier this gets, the more pressure there will be on on Sisi. So I imagine he's somewhat terrified by these developments. He is terrified by these developments, and 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 his regime could genuinely fall over this if he if he plays it wrong. Let's say if if there is a major displacement of Palestinians into 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 Egypt, and the genocidal ethnic cleansing plan succeeds, this would be a disaster for him. And again, I cannot overestimate the importance of the security establishment in Egypt for the making of decisions in that country, and the security establishment is fairly united on this there. It's just Sisi and his son, uh, Mahmoud Sisi, that were willing to consider the American offer and, and Blinken's pressures. But in reality, this is not a popular position within the Egyptian state. And therefore, they've had to indicate that they're strongly against it. And they've reiterated that. They've been reiterating it in the past while. Now, Jordan has even been taking a stronger line uh, because... It, Allow me to move to Jordan, Michael, a little yes, bit. Yes, we've or, actually or? only got I've only we've only got about ten minutes left, so let's try and rush yeah. through Jordan. That's a, a perfect segue. Yeah, so Jordan has even a trickier situation with this, Michael, because Jordan has absorbed a very large number of Palestinian refugees ever since they were expelled from their homeland in 1948, and depending, I mean, estimates vary of what's their percentage in the country, but. No reasonable estimate is below 
Okay, it's it's at least half half uh, Jordan Palestinian Jordan. Not if we discount also the recent and, refugees and, from Syria, and that's people of Iraq. Palestinian yeah. descent, right? It's not people who've who've directly come from Palestine. Uh, these uh, no, there are some of them directly came from Palestine. Some of them, there are still Nakba survivors alive. There are still Naksa survivors alive from 1967. Uh, but yes, the. the the, a good chunk would have been the majority would be younger people, of course, that were, that were. But but by the way, in international law, a refugee stays a refugee even if they're descendant. It's not it's not a. This is a, a major thing. <laughs> this is the amazing thing about Israel, Michael. They want to change international law constantly when it, it doesn't suit them. So it's like no, until you repatriate refugees, not resettle. By the way, the Palestinian refugee position is very reasonable. It's the most reasonable thing in the world. They're talking about repatriation into their territories. If you expel a refugee, you have to bring them back home. Even if they actually flee, they don't even expel them because the Israelis claim they fled, that they didn't expel them, which is actually not true. We know this historically now. There's so much evidence of expulsion, mass expulsion. But let's assume somebody even flees, they should go back home. That applies is to the- Ukraine, it applies to Rwanda, it applies to Palestine, it applies to the whole world. I just because so, yeah. this is just this is just one thing I have some uncertainty about because uh, as far as I understand it the rules which apply to Palestinian refugees are somewhat different to the rules which apply to other refugees because the the Palestinian refugee problem was created before the refugee convention and I'm not sure that all that, is it the case is, that is not correct okay that is not correct that is absolutely not correct actually the rules apply the same and a refugee law by the way on this was was already well had made a huge you know it's 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 taken form by the time we have the Palestine refugee situation emerging and the UN discussed it as such I mean look this had to do with notions that came out of the displaced people in Europe problems that affected actually ironically lots of Jewish refugees in Europe at the time so much of this law had to do with 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 crimes that came before the 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 Nakba we we. It, it, and it applies, by the way, to all refugee populations, okay? The uh, UN, in 1948, passed Resolution 194 that's specific to Palestine. What applies differently to Palestinian refugees is, has nothing to do with the law. It's, it's, it's how the, the humanitarian dimensions are handled by the international community. Most refugees are under UNHCR, okay? All refugees outside of Palestine refugee case are under UNHCR. For Palestinians, they're under UNRWA. And these are that has to do with services provided to them. It's not. It doesn't have to do with their rights. But just under international. Just law. so I'm clear about right. So if mm. so, let's look at the the India Pakistan example. So there sure. you had many people who were Muslims who were living in what's now India who fled to go sure. to Pakistan and and vice versa. Yeah. Now you know you could say some of them chose to go. I think many of them were driven yeah. out quite violently. Is yeah, it the my, case my, that my, if your parents it. were driven out of of India to go to Pakistan, you have a right? under international law to return to India. Yeah, but, but, but the, uh, the problem here is different because uh, that's a population exchange that was formalized between the, the, the two right. states and that people accepted that those refugees said, we, we're going to become like Pakistani nationals because we're, we're Muslim and the Hindus from, from uh, uh, Pakistan said we'll become Indian nationals. I mean, it's a tragic and horrific situation, by the way, one of the worst in human history. I don't recommend, by the way, any population exchanges in general, because as a historian, I've seen them happen. But in this situation, Palestinian, the most important thing is that Palestinian refugees do not want to be resettled. They don't want any scenario where they don't go back home. They've been saying this out loud from 1948 onwards. 
So it's quite astonishing how the whole of the world, the Western world, spends so much time, energy, and money on trying to suppress this aspiration from happening. And then they even criminalize these refugees. Michael, it's not it, justice for the refugees is not the problem. No, it's justice for the colonists. It's, it's dom- uh, the continuation of the dominance of the colonists over them. Uh, I mean, it's quite astonishing. Why is it that Netanyahu is descended from Warsaw, Poland, has a right to be a prime minister there, whereas here, Abed Takridi, that you're standing with here, is descended from Haifa, Palestine, cannot even live there or visit. Isn't that insane? I mean, it's 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 a crazy idea. It is, and it's it's very well yeah. put. I suppose just just in the last couple of minutes, it's a racist idea. Yeah, Michael. no, you're, you're, yeah. <laughs> but for Jordan, but for Jordan, it's a big threat to their national security because they're they're they've already absorbed a huge number of Palestinian refugees over the years. They've become a fundamental component in Jordanian life. We are very close. I'm a Palestinian Jordanian myself, and I'm proud of both identities, and and so are the majority of of Palestinians in Jordan. And we, we we have a very close cultural, linguistic, and and political bond with all our our brothers and sisters in Greater Syria as a whole, not just Jordan. But but when you look at the situation, we do not want to leave our homeland. Okay, the Jordanians do not want more of us to 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 arrive into into Jordan and for, further reduce the Jordanian original population to a bigger, even bigger minority. Jordan has can hardly absorb anybody, anyways. At this stage, it's absorbed several million Syrian refugees in the past years. The population of Jordan now is the the one of the poorest in the world when it comes to water, for example. There's no environmental resources to sustain this population size. And politically, the population is united on rejecting this project of establishing Jewish supremacy across the the land of Palestine from the uh, River Jordan to the Mediterranean Sea and renaming it as Greater Israel. It's not going to be something that anybody accepts in this part of the world. Now, something astonishing has happened. Even Queen Rania was normally, you know, just commenting on fashion blogs and, and you know, she's, she usually stays out of Western discussions of, of sensitive political issues. Even Queen Rania has come out and actually gave a very moving account to CNN talking about this humanitarian disaster that's going on, talking about this genocidal situation that's going on, and saying, look, we in Jordan will stand against this. That's a signal that for Jordanians, this is a red line. Now, unfortunately for the Jordanian state, it is it is dependent on USAID, $1.6 billion. So they've also been complicit in what's going on. And I'll tell you how, Michael, and this is the irony of everything. The, the Americans have now a weapons corridor to the Israelis. They're doing airlifts on a regular basis of weapons. Okay, They're sending huge amounts. And some of it is being sent through their bases in Jordan. They have many military bases in Jordan. So, so while the Jordanians are taking a strong stance in public against this, are also unable to stop the flow of weapons that are used to fuel this genocidal war machine. So it's a difficult situation, and that, I think, should illustrate to our listeners the difficulties that are faced by a government like Jordan, which is so close to the U.S., and it is tied to it, it's dependent on it, but at the same time, it, it, it cannot but say that this is a red line. It's very dangerous for its own existence as a government. This could have major ripple effects for the whole region. It's destabilizing for the entirety of the Middle East, 
But most importantly, from my perspective, of course, and the peoples living in the region, is that they can't watch this death horror show keep on going and and stay silent. You know, people in this region have never lost their humanity. They have a conscience. They care about what's going on in Gaza. And they watch the images from Gaza in a much more intense way than anybody does in the UK or the US. Because the, the media in the UK and the US doesn't spend that much time uh, on that subject. There's much more airtime given to Israeli casualties and so on. There's no discussion of the ratio, which traditionally, I should remind everybody, is about 20 to 1. For every Israeli killed historically in this in this situation, there's 20 Palestinians killed. And same goes for injuries. It's insanity. People in the region know that. They know the destruction of the physical environment. And in Jordan, this has meant that you have millions of people go out to the street. Same in Egypt. Even Tahrir Square, which is you banned from demonstrating the, uh, under Sisi. Sisi's iron fist has prevented demonstrations since the Arab Spring, Michael. But nevertheless, people have gone out because they believe this is a just cause. They believe that the liberation of Palestine is a human priority, is a global priority. They're clashing with a Western coalition that is uh, deeply problematic for them. Yes, they're dependent on this Western coalition for money and aid and weapons and so on, which is why they're constrained in how they could deal with it. But at the same time, they know that they will be answerable to their people if they stay completely silent on this genocide. So they're put in a very difficult and delicate situation from the governmental perspective. For the grassroots, it's never been an issue. The belief is that Palestinian freedom will come sooner or later, that the Israelis will try to continue to raise the Palestinian population, but this will not change the commitment of the Palestinians and the region around them for the liberation of Palestine. No matter how much you hear of well, Palestinians are irrelevant. We've, used to, we've been hearing this for several years. Nobody cares about them anymore. The Arabs just care about themselves. Every time this is said and promoted, and they've said it in the 80s, they've said it in the 50s, they've said it, I mean, as a story, you hear it over and over again. Believe me, the events prove them wrong. Will that alleviate the suffering? Unfortunately, I, 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 don't, I don't think so. So long as there is Western commitment to this genocidal project, then then it will continue. Abdel Razak Takuti, thank you so much for that whirlwind tour of the relations between Egypt, Israel, Palestine, Jordan. I think you really sort of highlighted the, the key issues that, that really matter when it comes to this helping us see the wood from the trees. I could speak to you for a lot longer, but I'm supposed to co-host Navarra Live in five minutes' time, and I know that you are an incredibly busy person at the moment as well. Um, so we will, we will wrap up there, but thank you so much for your time and for joining me on Crash Course. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Michael, for your fantastic uh, reporting and, and journalism. It's, uh, it's really necessary in these dark times. That was Abdel Razak Takriti speaking to me about Egypt and Jordan's relationship to Israel-Palestine. If you enjoyed the show, do consider leaving a review on whichever podcast app you use. Crash Course is produced and edited by Lewis Bassett and Patrick Herdman. Patrick Herdman does the sound design.